Section 27 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 24 of the Natural Attributes of the Deity. It is an immense conclusion that there is a God, a perceiving, intelligent, designing being, at the head of creation and from whose will it proceeded. The attributes of such a being, suppose his reality to be proved, must be adequate to the magnitude, extent, and multiplicity of his operations, which are not only vast beyond comparison with those performed by any other power, but, so far as respects our conceptions of them, infinite, because they are unlimited on all sides. Yet the contemplation of a nature so exalted, however surely we arrive at the proof of its existence, overwhelms our faculties. The mind feels its powers sink under the subject. One consequence of which is, that from painful abstraction the thoughts seek relief in sensible images. Whence may be deduced the ancient and almost universal propensity to idolatrous substitutions. They are the resources of a laboring imagination. False religions usually fall in with the natural propensity. True religions, or such as have derived themselves from the true, resist it. It is one of the advantages of the revelations which we acknowledge that, whilst they reject idolatry with its many pernicious accompaniments, they introduce the deity to human apprehension under an idea more personal, more determinate, more within its compass, than the theology of nature can do. And this they do by representing him exclusively under the relation in which he stands to ourselves, and, for the most part, under some precise character, resulting from that relation, or from the history of his providences which method suits the span of our intellects much better than the universality which enters into the idea of God as deduced from the views of nature. When, therefore, these representations are well founded in point of authority, for all depends upon that, they afford a condescension to the state of our faculties, of which they, who have most reflected on the subject, will be the first to acknowledge the want and the value. Nevertheless, if we be careful to imitate the documents of our religion, by confining our explanations to what concerns ourselves, and do not affect more precision in our ideas than the subject allows of, the several terms which are employed to denote the attributes of the deity may be made, even in natural religion, to bear a sense consistent with truth and reason, and not surpassing our comprehension. These terms are omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, eternity, self-existence, necessary existence, spirituality. Omnipotence, omniscience, infinite power, infinite knowledge are superlatives, expressing our conception of these attributes in the strongest and most elevated terms which language supplies. We ascribe power to the deity under the name of omnipotence, the strict and correct conclusion being that a power which could create such a world as this must be, beyond all comparison, greater than any which we experience in ourselves, than any which we observe in other visible agents, greater also than any which we can want for our individual protection and preservation in the being upon whom we depend. It is a power, likewise, to which we are not authorized by our observation or knowledge to assign any limits of space or duration. Very much of the same sort of remark is applicable to the term omniscience, infinite knowledge or infinite wisdom. In strictness of language, there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom wisdom always supposing action, and action directed by it. With respect to the first, viz. knowledge, the Creator must know, intimately, the constitution and properties of the things which He created, 
which seems also to imply a foreknowledge of their action upon one another and of their changes, at least so far as the same result from trains of physical and necessary causes. His omniscience also, as far as respects things present, is deducible from his nature as an intelligent being joined with the extent, or rather the universality, of his operations. Where he acts, he is, and where he is, he perceives. The wisdom of the deity, as testified in the works of creation, surpasses all idea we have of wisdom, drawn from the highest intellectual operations of the highest class of intelligent beings with whom we are acquainted, and which is of the chief importance to us, whatever be its compass or extent, which it is evidently impossible that we should be able to determine, it must be adequate to the conduct of that order of things under which we live. And this is enough. It is of very inferior consequence by what terms we express our notion, or rather our admiration, of this attribute. The terms which the piety and the usage of language have rendered habitual to us may be as proper as any other. We can trace this attribute much beyond what is necessary for any conclusion to which we have occasion to apply it. The degree of knowledge and power requisite for the formation of created nature cannot, with respect to us, be distinguished from infinite. The divine omnipresence stands, in natural theology, upon this foundation. In every part and place of the universe with which we are acquainted, we perceive the exertion of a power which we believe, mediately or immediately, to proceed from the deity. For instance, in what part or point of space that has ever been explored do we not discover attraction? In what regions do we not find light? In what accessible portion of our globe do we not meet with gravity, magnetism, electricity, together with the properties also and powers of organized substances of vegetable or of animated nature? Nay, further, we may ask, what kingdom is there of nature, what corner of space, in which there is anything that can be examined by us, where we do not fall upon contrivance and design? The only reflection, perhaps, which arises in our minds from this view of the world around us is that the laws of nature everywhere prevail, that they are uniform and universal. But what do we mean by the laws of nature, or by any law? Effects are produced by power, not by laws. A law cannot execute itself. A law refers us to an agent. Now, an agency so general as that we cannot discover its absence, or assign the place in which some effect of its continued energy is not found, may, in popular language at least, and perhaps without much deviation from philosophical strictness, be called universal, and with not quite the same, but with no inconsiderable propriety, the person or being in whom that power resides, or from whom it is derived, may be taken to be omnipresent. He who upholds all things by his power may be said to be everywhere present. This is called a virtual presence. There is also what metaphysicians denominate an essential ubiquity, and which idea the language of scripture seems to favor. But the former, I think, goes as far as natural theology carries us. Eternity is a negative idea, clothed with a positive name. It supposes, in that to which it is applied, a present existence, and is the negation of a beginning or an end of that existence. As applied to the deity, it has not been controverted by those who acknowledge a deity at all. Most assuredly, there never was a time in which nothing existed, because that condition must have continued. The universal blank must have remained. Nothing could rise up out of it, nothing could ever have existed since, nothing could exist now. In strictness, however, we have no concern with duration prior to that of the visible world. 
Upon this article, therefore, of theology, it is sufficient to know that the contriver necessarily existed before the contrivance. Self-existence is another negative idea, viz. the negation of a preceding cause, as of a progenitor, a maker, an author, a creator. Necessary existence means demonstrable existence. Spirituality expresses an idea made up of a negative part and of a positive part. The negative part consists in the exclusion of some of the known properties of matter, especially of solidity, of the vis inertiae, and of gravitation. The positive part comprises perception, thought, will, power, action, by which last term is meant the origination of motion, the quality, perhaps, in which resides the essential superiority of spirit over matter, which cannot move unless it be moved, and cannot but move when impelled by another. I apprehend that there can be no difficulty in applying to the deity both parts of this idea. Chapter 25. Of the Unity of the Deity. Of the unity of the deity, the proof is the uniformity of plan observable in the universe. The universe itself is a system, each part either depending upon other parts, or being connected with other parts, by some common law of motion, or by the presence of some common substance. One principle of gravitation causes a stone to drop towards the earth, and the moon to wheel round it. One law of attraction carries all the different planets about the sun. This philosophers demonstrate. There are also other points of agreement amongst them, which may be considered as marks of the identity of their origin and of their intelligent author. In all are found the conveniency and stability derived from gravitation. They all experience vicissitudes of days and nights, and changes of season. They all, at least Jupiter, Mars, and Venus, have the same advantages from their atmospheres as we have. In all the planets, the axes of rotation are permanent. Nothing is more probable than that the same attracting influence, acting according to the same rule, reaches to the fixed stars. But if this be only probable, another thing is certain, viz., that the same element of light does. The light from a fixed star affects our eyes in the same manner, is refracted and reflected according to the same laws as the light of a candle. The velocity of the light of the fixed stars is also the same as the velocity of the light of the sun, reflected from the satellites of Jupiter. The heat of the sun in kind differs nothing from the heat of a coal fire. In our own globe the case is clearer. New countries are continually discovered, but the old laws of nature are always found in them. New plants, perhaps, or animals, but always in company with plants and animals which we already know, and always possessing many of the same general properties. We never get amongst such original or totally different modes of existence as to indicate that we are come into the province of a different creator, or under the direction of a different will. In truth, the same order of things attends us wherever we go. The elements act upon one another, electricity operates, the tides rise and fall, the magnetic needle elects its position, in one region of the earth and sea as well as in another. One atmosphere invests all parts of the globe and connects all. One sun illuminates. One moon exerts its specific attraction upon all parts. If there be a variety in natural effects, as, e.g., in the tides of different seas, that very variety is the result of the same cause acting under different circumstances. In many cases this is proved, in all is probable. The inspection and comparison of living forms add to this argument examples without number. Of all large terrestrial animals, the structure is very much alike. Their senses nearly the same, 
their natural functions and passions nearly the same, their viscera nearly the same, both in substance, shape, and office, digestion, nutrition, circulation, secretion, go on in a similar manner in all, the great circulating fluid is the same. For, I think, no difference has been discovered in the properties of blood from whatever animal it be drawn. The experiment of transfusion proves that the blood of one animal will serve for another. The skeletons also of the larger terrestrial animals show particular varieties, but still under a great general affinity. The resemblance is somewhat less, yet sufficiently evident, between quadrupeds and birds. They are all alike in five respects for one in which they differ. In fish, which belong to another department, as it were, of nature, the points of comparison become fewer, but we never lose sight of our analogy, e.g. we still meet with a stomach, a liver, a spine, with bile and blood, with teeth, with eyes, which eyes are only slightly varied from our own, and which variation, in truth, demonstrates not an interruption, but a continuance of the same exquisite plan, for it is the adaptation of the organ to the element, viz. to the different refraction of light passing into the eye out of a denser medium. The provinces also, themselves, of water and earth, are connected by the species of animals which inhabit both, and also by a large tribe of aquatic animals which closely resemble the terrestrial in their internal structure. I mean the cetaceous tribe, which have hot blood, respiring lungs, bowels, and other essential parts like those of land animals. This similitude surely bespeaks the same creation and the same creator. Insects and shellfish appear to me to differ from other classes of animals the most widely of any, yet even here, besides many points of particular resemblance, there exists a general relation of a peculiar kind. It is the relation of inversion, the law of contrariety viz. that whereas in other animals the bones to which the muscles are attached lie within the body, in insects and shellfish they lie on the outside of it. The shell of a lobster performs to the animal the office of a bone, by furnishing to the tendons that fixed basis or immovable fulcrum without which mechanically they could not act. The crust of an insect is its shell and answers the like purpose. The shell also of an oyster stands in the place of a bone the basis of the muscles being fixed to it, in the same manner as in other animals they are fixed to the bones. All which, under wonderful varieties indeed and adaptations of form, confesses an imitation, a remembrance, a carrying on of the same plan. The observations here made are equally applicable to plants, but, I think, unnecessary to be pursued. It is a very striking circumstance, and alone sufficient to prove all which we contend for, that, in this part, likewise, of organized nature, we perceive a continuation of the sexual system. Certain, however, it is that the whole argument for the divine unity goes no further than to unity of counsel. It may likewise be acknowledged that no arguments which we are in possession of exclude the ministry of subordinate agents. If such there be, they act under a presiding, a controlling will, because they act according to certain general restrictions, by certain common rules, and, as it should seem, upon a general plan. But still such agents, and different ranks, and classes, and degrees of them, may be employed. End of section 27